Brother Matt said, we're contemplating the character of our God. Our God is gracious. And in some sense, we do a disservice to pull out the individual characteristics of God. Our God is gracious, but he's gracious in the context of his mercy. And this mercy is seen in his slowness to anger. And it's inseparable from his goodness and truth. And his grace is also seen in his forgiveness of iniquity and sin and transgression. And in thinking about his grace and mercy, his goodness, as Paul puts it, it's important not to forget his severity. He can't save those who don't turn to him. He can't clear the guilty. And the consistency of his character demands the response to those who turn their back on him. So we discuss the grace of God advisedly, as it's difficult to pull out one characteristic and showcase it as separate from the others, because all God's qualities, of course, are intertwined. That said, though, the grace of God is a wonderful theme of Scripture. And I think we'll get a lot of encouragement by looking at this topic in some detail, this incredible quality of our God. There's a great quote in Romans which puts our sorry human state in stark contrast to the character of our God. For all have sinned, Romans chapter 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We owe much to Moses' desire for God's glory. And what is God's glory? Moses thought he knew. He first met and spoke with God, who appeared to him out of the flame of fire from the midst of a bush at Horeb. A few weeks later, he followed a pillar of fire which led him and the people back to Horeb. So let's come to Exodus chapter 24. Two or three months later, after they left Egypt, they arrive at Horeb. And we read in Exodus chapter 24, verse 15. And Moses went up into the mount, this is his second trip up the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of Yahweh abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and gat him up unto the mount. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. The glory of God was on Mount Sinai, we're told. And what did the people see? What they saw was like a devouring fire at the top of the mountain. The people saw a glow. It was like a raging fire was, was there, visible, despite the distance and despite the fact that it was daytime. 
Moses saw God's glory on the mountain and it was incredible. But Moses reflects on this. Yes, he saw God's glory, but he only saw it through a cloud. And we know the story. Moses is on the mount 40 days and 40 nights and he gets instructions for the tabernacle. He gets instructions for the priesthood and for the worship that would, uh, would be carried out by the nation, all the offerings. And finally, on the last day, he's given two tablets of stone with ten commandments on them, written with the finger of God. And he comes down from the mount and he finds that the children of Israel have broken about half of the commandments, worshipping the golden calf. And he throws those tablets down and breaks them, symbolic of, of their respect for the commandments. Then Moses has the Levites kill 3,000, presumably of the, the, uh, the most active idol worshippers. And then God sends a plague as an additional punishment. So the people have sinned a great sin, Exodus chapter 33. Verse 1. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thee, thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. <clears throat> for I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. <laughs> and, and God had already said to Moses in Exodus chapter 32, before Moses had even been down and seen with his own eyes, Exodus chapter 32, verse 9. I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. But then in verse 14, And Yahweh repented of the evil which he thought to do unto this people, after Moses pleads for them. So God says to Moses, in Exodus chapter 33, it's better, Moses, if I don't come. I'll send an angel instead. If I travel with this people, I'm going to end up totally destroying them. I'd better not come. And Moses moves his tent out of the camp and he talks with God in verse 9. And in verse 11, we're told that Yahweh spoke unto Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And what does Moses say to his friend while he's speaking with him face to face? He says, I'm worried about the journey with this people. I don't know who you're going to send with me, God, in verse 12. And God, knowing Moses' Concern before Moses even articulates it, says, don't worry, in verse 14, my presence will go with thee and I will give thee rest. What reassuring words for Moses to hear, brothers and sisters. God had put the burden 
onto Moses. He said, you lead these people, Moses. I'll give you just one of my angels. I don't want to work directly with this people. You deal with it, Moses. Two million people. Homeless, stateless, ex-slaves. How would you feel? And God wanted you to create out of this people a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And Moses was relying so heavily on his God. And when God says that he is coming in verse 14, Moses is so thankful. Thank you, thank you so much. I didn't want to say it, verse 15, but if your presence isn't going to come with me, I don't want to do this journey at all. It's too hard. It's too much responsibility. But God says, don't worry, Moses. I'll do the hard work. I will give you rest. And look how Moses approaches this conversation that he has with his God outside the camp. Let's come back and look at it. Verse 12, halfway through. He says, Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Verse 13, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. Verse 16. For wherefore shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not that thou goest with us? Verse 17. And Yahweh said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. So God wants to wipe his people off the face of the earth. But instead, he works with Moses. Moses, who had asked God not to destroy this people, but to continue to work with them and to work with them directly, preferably. And the only way that this is going to happen is if Moses appeals, as he does, to God's grace. Because God is gracious five times he uses the word in this passage i need your grace dear god the people need your grace and what is grace is it not god's presence amongst the people who don't deserve it is it not a close and personal friendship with those who have faith and those who are trying to follow God's way. And Moses says in verse 13, Show me your way that I may know thee. If we're going on a journey, well, I'll follow you. Show me your way. Show me that way that leads to life. And sadly, many didn't follow that way, did they? They didn't enter the rest. They died in the wilderness. They didn't believe 
in a God full of grace. So they didn't receive any. But verse 17, you have found grace in my sight, Moses. Moses had found grace, but not the people. Show me your way. And then Moses remembers the burning bush. He remembers the pillar of fire and the glory shining through the cloud on the mount. And that was the proof that he would need for God to show that he would be with them. This would reignite his confidence. This would show the people that, that God would go with them. So he says, verse 18, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. I want to see your glory again, God. And this time, I want to see your full glory. Don't cover it with a cloud. I want to believe that you're going to come with us. You, your own presence, not an angel that you're deputising. And how does God respond? In verse 19, and he said, Okay, Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. There's our word. And I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I'll put thee in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I'll take my hand away, and thou shalt see my back parts but my face shall not be seen. So how does God respond to this request? Does Moses deserve God's grace? Moses was a sinner, just like the rest of the people. He doesn't deserve it, but he receives it because of his faith. And God responds by agreeing to his request God says yes Moses I will show you my glory and God's glory as we know is seen in brilliant light God is light and God would show more of his brilliant light to Moses than he'd ever been exposed to before but God protects him and he doesn't grant him his wish to see his full glory. Because God points out, Moses, you can't see my face and live. I'll just let you see my back parts. But God's also talking to a friend. He's talking to one who has found grace in his sight. And Moses is focused on the visible spectrum of God's glory. But God is going to show him so much more, isn't he? Moses, my true glory, what makes me so incredible, what makes me really shine is who I am. That's what you can trust in and that's what you can rely on, Moses. And that's what I want to show you, my character. And in chapter 34, which 
we read tonight, there's no narrative description describing how Moses goes into the cleft of the rock. There's no description of how physically and logistically God covers Moses' face with one hand while passing by him and then removing his hand to show his back parts. But what we do read in chapter 34 in great detail is God showing his glory with a description of his character. Chapter 34, verse 5. And Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed by before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. <coughs> God says he's merciful, he's gracious, he's long-suffering, he's full of goodness and truth. He's merciful to thousands not just to Moses. He's forgiving. But the guilty, they would be shown justice and God would uphold his righteousness. This is a God who Moses could rely on. This is a God whose character is, is perfect. This is a God whose ways you can follow. And these are the qualities that if taken on by the nation would result in a happy and purpose-filled people that then God would further bless. And how does Moses respond? Verse 8, Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. He prostrated himself. He's floored by what he's heard. He worships the God who has these magnificent qualities. And Moses is a meek man as we know, he comes humbly before his God to ask his petition again, that God go with him. And what quality does he single out of all the beautiful qualities that, that God has revealed to him? He appeals to his graciousness because he knows that's exactly what he needs from his God. And he said, verse 9, if now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. He needs God's grace for God to go among his people. He desperately wants their iniquity and their sin to be forgiven. He wants God to lead them into their inheritance, into their rest. This is the very definition of who God is. This is a God who will forgive sins. And God says in verse 10 that he'll make a covenant. He'll do marvels. He'll take this rabble of slaves and he'll make them into a great nation. He'll carve out a place for them 
in the land he promised to the fathers. But there would be strict rules imposed upon this nation with clear punishments to ensure that they would be obedient. If I have found grace. And Moses realises that it's by God's grace that God will forgive sins and that he'll work with those who are trying to walk in his way. <laughs> and although we don't hear about the physical glory of God being seen, we read about the result in verse 29 and 30. The skin of Moses' face shone. And we're left to wonder, was this a result of the physical exposure to God's glory? Or is Moses' shining face an outward expression of Moses absorbing God's inequalities? Either way, Moses comes down from the mount, a changed person, both physically and spiritually. Grace is a gift. It's undeserved favour. And we rely so heavily on God for his grace. Israel relied so heavily on God and his grace. And all of God's qualities that he reveals to Moses are so perfectly matched to deal with this difficult and rebellious group of people who was trying to mould to be his holy nation. And these qualities are, of course, important for us and God's dealing with our failings and for all of mankind who are often stubborn and rebellious. And God especially treasures those who respond to his grace in love and faith, as, of course, his servant Moses did. And God assures Moses that he's going to go with him to the promised land. And he'll do so because of his grace. So let's come now to the New Testament and let's follow this idea of glory and God's grace in John's Gospel. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So the disciple of our Lord, John, just like Moses, was keen to see God's glory. And he did see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. His face shone as he talked with Moses and Elijah on the mount. But of course, John understood that the real glory of our Lord Jesus Christ was not the glory you could see. We beheld 
his glory. We looked intently on his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Christ's glory was his reflection of God's character. He was full of God's character. And was therefore full of God's brilliant and amazing glory. And John summarises God's character and our Lord's character as one full of grace and truth. Beautiful words. Our Lord Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Verse 16. From of his fullness, we have received grace for grace. The ESV says, grace upon grace. We've received, John tells us, so much grace, an abundance of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. In him, there's so much undeserved favour, as the word means. Let's have a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, or made us alive, together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Again, beautiful and lofty words, and this time by the Apostle Paul. God loved us with an incredibly great love. He was rich in mercy, he says, when we were dead in sins. And sin deserves death, of course. But he's made us alive with Christ and in Christ. And Christ is alive, he points out. And he's our guarantee. And we read at the end of verse 5, by grace ye are saved. So we can be given life because of God's grace. We're raised up from our natural hopeless state and raised so high that we can be sitting with Christ in heaven. What a contrast in the states. From death, what we naturally deserve, to being given life forever with God. With God and his Son, in heavenly places, a position we absolutely in no way do deserve. Life forever with God and his Son. Verse 7, in the ages to come, when Christ returns, he'll show you the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us. And God is rich. He owns everything. He inhabits eternity. 
he lives forever. He has all power in the universe. And he'll share some of these riches with us, his servants, by his grace. And in case you forgot, you deserve absolutely none of this. Verse 8, for by grace ye are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we receive God's grace. And it's because of God's grace and only because of God's grace that we can be saved. But only on the basis of faith. And not of ourselves. It's nothing we've done. It's a gift, Paul points out. And the greatest gift of all, we read elsewhere, is the gift that God gave the world, the gift of his son. And eternal life, of course, is the gift that Paul's talking about here. It's the gift that God gives us, and it's only possible because of this sacrifice of his son. It's not of works. It's nothing we can do or have done. It's because of faith, and it's undeserved. <laughs> Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Show me your way, says Moses. Show me the way to walk. Because God has prepared the way and Jesus has shown us how to live. And we follow the footsteps of our master. And it's a privilege we can enjoy because of God's grace. And we started our thoughts this evening with a quote from Romans. So let's turn there, Romans Chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse, starting verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. All have sinned, Paul points out. All come short of the glory of God. All come far short of living out the incredible qualities of God fully displaying his character. But we can be righteous, and that's based on our faith. God can forgive us freely by his grace. All have sinned, but all can be saved by God's grace. Our God is gracious. And of course, the exception to this catch-all of all have sinned is our Lord Jesus Christ. He never sinned. And he didn't come short of the glory of God. He was full of God's glory. He was full of grace and truth. And we can stay on in Romans to read more about the grace of God in chapter 5, verse 15. 
But not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. <laughs> many people died. Millions of people died because of the actions of Adam. And by contrast, many people, millions, we hope, will be made alive because of the grace of God. And specifically, the gift of grace. And that gift of grace is identified as our Lord giving his life for others. Verse 16, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one man to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offences under justification. <laughs> For if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So death reigned over the human population since Adam, without exception. And all received death because they were part of the kingdom of sin. This was deserved. These were wages, Paul points out in Romans chapter 6. But the gift of grace is different. The gift of grace cannot be and isn't deserved. Life is the gift. Eternal life to those who are counted righteous because of their faith and faithfulness to a better king. Verse 20, moreover, the, Lord entered, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin abounds, but as a countermeasure, grace did much more abound. All sin could be forgiven. Sin reigned, and all who belong to the kingdom of sin die. But with Christ, grace will reign. Grace is in effect the king of the kingdom of our Lord, and all its citizens will receive eternal life. Because great grace is the antidote to the effect of sin. And grace exists because it's a key quality of God himself. Grace reigns. It's seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he can make us righteous because of our faith. And the end result, Paul tells us, of this incredible gift of grace is eternal life. Then Paul takes this idea of grace to the extreme, doesn't he, in in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If we want grace to abound, isn't the best way to immerse ourselves in sin and then turn around and allow God to exhibit his grace towards us? And Paul says, no, that's, that's not how it works. 
if we've experienced God's grace, really experienced God's grace, we've followed a new path. And that path is a path which leads to life and it avoids sin. And if we're on that path, we're following as closely as we can the way that our Lord Jesus Christ worked, walked. So there's plenty of grace that we displayed when we inevitably fail on our way to that way of life, that high calling to which we are called, that our Lord walked on. So it's Paul who writes to us so beautifully about God's grace that we've read here in Romans. So I thought it'd be good to, as a final thought, to have a look at a direct application of grace in Paul's own personal life. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And lest I shall be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong." What an incredible concept. Paul prays fervently, he tells us, three times that his ailment would leave him. It was embarrassing. It was hindering the vital mission work that Christ had asked him to be engaged in. Please, Lord, take this thorn away. But no, our Lord had a reason for this ailment. And it was to keep him from being proud and conceited about his abilities and the revelations that were given to him. My grace is sufficient for thee. What a statement for Paul to reflect on. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is all we need. It's everything. No matter what our situation in life. Whether we're healthy or whether we're ill. Whether we're rich or poor. The grace of our Lord is all we need. And his grace is life and health and strength forevermore. Paul, you don't need to be the strong one. You don't need to do things in your own strength. 
Paul, I'm strong enough for the both of us. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And this completely turned Paul's perspective around. He could now glory in his infirmity, in his sickness, because he would receive Christ's grace all the more. He'd receive the power of Christ. It would rest over him, in verse 9, like a protective cover. The power of Christ may rest upon me. It's like what God says to Moses, my presence will go with thee. It will be there for you, says Jesus. And Paul even says in verse 10 that he could take pleasure in his infirmities. When he was weak, then he could be strong. Because it taught him even more to rely on Christ and his grace and not his own strength. So we see in this a parable in Paul's own body. That man by his own power and good deeds will not earn salvation. But to gratefully accept the gift of grace that our God offers. And Paul's constantly thinking about this grace that our Lord Jesus Christ had offered to him. In almost every letter that he wrote, it contained the phrase, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He knew that the grace of our Lord was with him. And he knew that the comfort and strength that he gained from it was so important. And he earnestly wished for that same comfort for his fellow believers. Our God is gracious, but he's also merciful. And I look forward to discussing that characteristic with you in two weeks' time. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you. continue our discussion around God's character and this, uh, this evening focusing particularly on the mercy of our God. There are so many examples of God's mercy right throughout scripture. This is uh, a defining part of, of who God is. A great one to start with is surprisingly in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah's book of Lamentations. So if you turn with me there. So Jeremiah, we find him in this book in tears. God's city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been burnt to the ground. Solomon's beautiful temple it was the pride of the nation. And it was the dwelling place of God himself. The city walls are broken down. The gates are destroyed. 
The people have died in their thousands from starvation. Children had begged in the streets. The people had been reduced to animals in the siege. And then when it lifted, it was only for them to be slain with the sword. And if they were spared, it was only to be spared to go into captivity. What a wretched and miserable and depressing picture that's painted. And so Jeremiah weeps. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 16. For these things I weep. Mine eye, my eye runneth down with water. Zion spreadeth forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. So Jeremiah weeps, he's in tears, and in verse 20, his bowels are troubled. It moves him deeply, internally. Verse 22, his sighs are many, and his heart, it's faint. Chapter 2, verse 20, still in Lamentations. Behold, O Yahweh, and consider to whom thou hast done this. Shall the women eat their fruit and the children of a span long? Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of Yahweh? The young and the old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men are fallen by the sword. Thou hast slain them in the day of thine anger. Thou hast killed them and not pitied. What a terrible scene. Jeremiah saw this and it's burnt into his mind. And Jeremiah considers all of his experiences. Verse 1 of chapter 3. He's been beaten with the rod of God's affliction. Verse 2. He's been brought by God into darkness. He can't see any light. Verse 4, his flesh and his skin's been made old, he says. His bones were broken. There was great physical hardship, personally, for Jeremiah. Remember, he was treated terribly during the siege in in the pit and then later in in the prison. Verse 6, he's in a dark place. Verse 8, God seems to be ignoring his prayers, his shouts and cries to God and not heard. Verse 18, and I said, my strength and my hope is perished from Yahweh, remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. What a hopeless and depressing situation that Jeremiah finds himself in. God's prophet is consumed with sorrow and loss and grief and trauma. And how could Jeremiah possibly stop this wave of despair from overwhelming him? Well, he tells us how. In chapter 3, verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of Yahweh's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I don't think, brothers and sisters, that it's the power of positive thinking that's here at work. Jeremiah isn't given to positive thoughts, is he? He's consumed with very real and and very dark depression, and with good reason. 
but light can break through the darkness. And Jeremiah perceives the light, the glory of God, if you will, when he remembers God's mercy. God's mercy is an antidote to Jeremiah's black depression and despair. And it's the only thing that can break through. Why? Jeremiah, uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, tells us that God keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. God was capable, Jeremiah knew, of great judgment because that was part of who God was. That's how he defined himself. The guilty, the unrepentant, the unfaithful would be judged. But Jeremiah remembers that this God of judgment who had judged so harshly these, this land of Judah was also a God of great mercy. And Israel had become steeped in iniquity, transgression and sin. The sins of Manasseh had had a lasting effect on the nation of Israel. And the third and the fourth generation since his terrible reign, they are the ones who felt God's wrath. Their sins wouldn't be pardoned and they were visited by the angel of death. It is of Yahweh's mercies verse 22 that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not they are new every morning great is thy faithfulness and despite God's great and terrible judgment there was still a remnant God hadn't of course consumed the nation of Israel there remained in Judah the poor of the people and God, of course, had made sure that the good figs were carried safe into Babylon and were protected there. God could have destroyed all of Israel, but by his mercy, Jeremiah remembers, they were not consumed. God's compassion doesn't fail. It's always there. His mercies, Jeremiah tells us, are new every morning. They're as reliable as the rotation of the earth on its axis. Great is thy faithfulness. In verse 31, Jeremiah chapter, uh, Lamentations chapter 3, For Yahweh will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Despite the grief, despite the depression and the tears, Jeremiah can appreciate, does appreciate the abundance of God's mercy. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't want to cause grief. Instead, he wants to show love and kindness and mercy. But he can't let the wicked go unpunished. Because in the end, that means the righteous would end up suffering more. So Jeremiah, he takes hold of this quality of mercy of his God. And he lets it 
wash over his mind. It calms him. It dries his tears. It gives him hope. And he can now see light. He can see God's glory. He can see God at work in the nation and in his own life. What a powerful lesson for us, brothers and sisters, what the mercy of God can do for our perspective and our hope. Because we sin, we transgress, we commit iniquity every day. But if we're faithful, we won't be consumed. He'll have compassion on us. He'll show us his mercy because he is faithful. Let's have a look at the first use of the word mercy in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, God has already appeared to Abraham and he decides to reveal to him the great judgment that he was going to bring on Sodom and Gomorrah, a judgment that would scar the land and be visible even to today. So God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, he says, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Their sin is grievous and judgment is coming. And Abraham says, well, will, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And God says, no, no, I won't, Abraham. I'm not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Because God cares about the righteous. God cares about 50 righteous. He cares about 45 righteous. He cares about 40 righteous. He cares about 30. He cares about 20. He cares about 10. And as it turns out, God cares even if there's just one righteous person. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was very great. It was a city filled with violence. It was a city filled with immorality and homosexuality and men and presumably women committing despicable acts. It was not a city for righteous people. Lot should never have been in Sodom. And Lot brought his ecclesia to this city. An ecclesia of obviously well over 50 faithful brothers and sisters. And every single one, by Lot himself, was corrupted by the influence of Sodom. And the blame falls on one man's shoulders, a man who chose a life of affluence living in a city rather than that of a nomadic tent dweller. And it was Lot who destroyed his enclosure. He deserved to share in the fate that was coming to this evil, evil city. But we read in verse... Uh, 12 of Genesis chapter 19. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou there any besides, son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we'll destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of Yahweh. And Yahweh hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for Yahweh will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. So the angels warn Lot, and Lot believes. 
Lot's faithful, Lot's righteous. Verse 15, And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, Yahweh being merciful unto him. And there's our word. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. God was merciful to Lot. First he warned him, and then when he wouldn't leave because he was desperately trying to save some of those of his ecclesia, the angel forcibly removes him. God shows him mercy, and the angels dragged him out of the city with his wife and his two daughters in the early light of dawn. Yahweh being merciful unto him. Verse 17, And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, and look not thee behind thee, neither stay thou in, in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape hither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. Can you believe this? Lot knows the whole place is going to be destroyed. The plain's about to be turned into a sinkhole. Fire and brimstone is going to rain down. God's already had to save him from the city. And he would have stayed there trying to convince some of his family to leave that cursed place. And it would have been too late. But the angels took the decision out of his hands and they pulled him physically out of the city. And now he's trying to negotiate the location of the evacuation centre. Go to the mountain he's told. The whole plane is going to be destroyed. But Lot says, please, please God, have mercy. I can't run. I'm exhausted. I've been up all night running from house to house, pleading with my family to listen to me. I can't do it. I can't get to the mountain. Please let me get to this little city on the plane. What would you do if you're the angel? You miserable ingratiate. Your uncle Abraham's got plenty of energy to walk around all day. We've already saved your miserable life. You deserve to die because you've destroyed the whole of God's ecclesia. Why on earth would you choose to live with the people of Sodom over the company of Abraham? You deserve their fate, Lot. I've saved your life once. If you don't get to that mountain, your blood will be upon your own head. But Lot correctly says that God has magnified his mercy in verse 18. He's shown so much mercy, an abundance of mercy. And even in this last request, this ridiculous request, God grants it. And it's not until Lot and his daughters were through the gates of Zor that the destruction and the judgment began. 
So God shows great mercy in his dealings with Lot. He warns him, then he drags him out, then he delays his judgment and changes his plans by sparing Zor. Lot was righteous despite all of his mistakes. Lot had faith in God. And God shows him an incredible amount of mercy. And what a wonderful quality of our God. Let's come to our reading for tonight, Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. Psalm 103, verse 1, we read, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless his name, bless his character, says David. Verse 4, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. So we've got two different words here. Loving kindness um, is the word kesed, translated here loving kindness, but often translated as mercy. And then tender mercy is the word rakam, again, often translated mercy as it is here. So the loving kindness and the tender mercy of God. God redeemed David's life, David says in, in verse 4. He did it so many times, didn't he? He saved him from a lion. He saved him from a bear. He saved him from a giant. He saved him multiple times in battles. He saved him from Saul. He saved him from the rebellion of Absalom. And David says that God crowns him with mercy. It surrounds his head, loving kindness and tender mercy. And as he writes this, he's crowned as a king with a literal crown. But the most important crown was the crown of mercy from his God. He was ruling on God's throne as part of God's kingdom on earth. And God's throne is a throne of mercy. And he felt the mercy of God so many times throughout his life, especially with his sins. Verse 6. Yahweh executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. This is the job of a king to give justice to the oppressed. And David's role was to copy his God, his king, as he distributed justice and judgment in the land. And God, verse 7, David says, made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. What great encouragement that David took from the revelation of God's character to Moses and the children of Israel. He repeats what he knows. He made known his ways. We talked about that last class, didn't we? Moses says to God, show me your way. Show me the path to walk. And then God does. 
You walk like this, Moses. You show mercy. You show grace. Be slow to anger. Show mercy in abundance. David's summary in verse 8. Because that's what God does. That's who God is. God is a God of mercy. And this time in verse 8, we have the word rakum, translated also as merciful. Slightly different to the word in verse 4, which is rakem, but the same root word, or really rakham, if you're speaking Hebrew. And then we have the word kesed as well, which is translated mercy in verse 8. So verse 10, he's, he's not dealt with us after our sins or reward us according to our iniquities. The punishment for any sin is death. We all deserve death. But God extends, doesn't he, his mercy. And then look at this for a word picture in verse 11. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. The gap between heaven, the center of the universe, the presence of God himself, and our humble earth, as huge as that gap is, it's bridged by God's mercy. There's an enormous gulf between us and our God. It's a universe away. It would take billions of light years to even travel part of the distance to bring us to God. But because of God's mercy, it means that God can be right here next to us. It's absolutely beautiful. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. We all have plenty of sins, brothers and sisters, things we regret, things we're ashamed of. And sometimes we feel burdened by our sins. And if we feel like that, it's because we're carrying our sins around with us, aren't we? Our sins follow us wherever we go. But David says it shouldn't be like that. Because of God's mercy, because of his forgiveness, our sins have gone one way and we've gone the other way. As far as the east is, from the west, David says. Our sins are in the opposite direction. We'll never meet our sins again because of God's mercy. If we fear him and if we have faith. Verse 13, like as a father pitieth his children, so Yahweh pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. As a father pitieth his children. We love our children, don't we? Or our grandchildren, or our nephews and nieces. Children do the wrong thing of course, but we love them and we care for them all the same. We remember that our children are just learning and we have patience with them. 
And our God, we're told, remembers that we are his children. He remembers that he made us from the dust. He remembers that we're living a temporary existence, like the grass, like the flower of the field, full of life and vibrant for a time, but then suddenly gone. And that could be the end. But, verse 17, the mercy of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments and do them. Our lives are temporary, but God is eternal. And because God's eternal, so is his mercy. It's from everlasting to everlasting. God's mercy is real. It's permanent. It's always there. And we can trust it with our whole lives. And God knows that we're not perfect. And he extends his mercy. But he can't do everything. It's up to us to fear him. It's up to us to honour him, to walk in his way and to keep his covenants and to remember to do his commandments in verse 18. The mercy of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting. There's no beginning and there's no end to the mercy of God. Verse 19, Yahweh hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. The heavens are high above the earth, and God rules from heaven over all. God's king of all creation, and all are part of his kingdom. His crown is a crown of mercy, eternal mercy to those who love and who fear him. Let's now come to... Micah, Micah chapter 6, where we have another very well-known quote referencing the mercy of God and the mercy we should show. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? And the context here is a question of what we can do for God. Earlier in the chapter, it says, how should we come and worship before him? Do we come, in verse 6, with burnt offerings? What about if we offer thousands of ram, rams? What if we offer 10,000 rivers of oil? Verse 7. What if we gave our firstborn, our most precious thing, to obtain the forgiveness of our sins? But we're told it's much more simple than all those things. God just wants three things, three beautifully 
simple things. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Justice, mercy, humility. Live and love and follow the characteristics of God himself. God is merciful and he wants us to show mercy to others. And not just to show mercy, but to love to show mercy. So that mercy becomes a part of who we are. Let's have a look at one of the parables of our Lord that perfectly captures this idea of God showing mercy to us and our obligation to show mercy to others in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23, the words of Jesus. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And one had begun to reckon, and when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. An impossible sum, over a billion dollars. And of course, the point is that this is the debt that we owe to God. It's a debt which cannot be paid. It's impossible to pay this debt. And the only hope of redemption is if the debt is forgiven. Verse 27, Then the Lord said of that servant, The Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. It's because of God's mercy and because of the sacrifice of our Lord and because of our faith that our sins can be forgiven. And how do we respond? In faith, in, in, in gratitude and in thankfulness? Well, this servant didn't. Verse 28. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I'll pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. This servant was owed a lot of money by his fellow servant, maybe $10,000. And this servant could pay it back, but maybe he wasn't very diligent, wasn't careful with his money. So he doesn't have the money when it's demanded back off him. So instead, he asks for patience. He asks for mercy, but he finds none. And the first servant, despite being shown great mercy, doesn't make the logical extension to show mercy to others. Verse 32, Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgavest thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldst not thou also had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had compassion on thee? This word compassion is the word elio in the Greek, and it's almost always translated as mercy. I have had compassion, or you should have had compassion on your fellow servant. You should have had mercy on your fellow servant and others. So the message here is to be like 
the King. Be like our King, our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Are we like our King? It's easy to be frustrated and offended with our brothers and sisters. It's easy to see the faults in others and to dwell on them and for their faults to consume us in our thinking. It's easy to see the errors and the inconsistencies in other people. It's easy to point out and to see people who make the same mistakes over and over again. And maybe we can get impatient. Maybe our hearts can become hard and we stop feeling merciful and instead feel a righteous anger and we pronounce judgment on our brothers and sisters. But God has shown us mercy and he's forgiven all our sins, our many sins. So we ought to forgive the few sins that our brother will sin against us. And even if his sins are many and grievous, we forgive him. Our Lord says 70 times 7 at the start of this section. Have mercy because we've been shown so much more mercy. Be like God, our King. Let's now come to Luke chapter 1 where we reading about the events that are happening before the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll read the words of Mary, a prayer from Mary. She's just seen her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And Elizabeth tells her that she's blessed among women and she prays. In Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. For he hath regarded the lower state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him, from generation to generation. God's mercy, Mary tells us, is on them that fear him. And Mary feared God, didn't she? She feared and so did her husband Joseph. They were both entrusted with a hugely important task to bring up the Son of God. A son who would embody that characteristic of mercy. And then God showed mercy to this young family. He guided them. He protected them as they brought up his treasured son. Verse 54. He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. Abraham, Mary remembers was promised a seed, the seed that she would be giving birth to. What a privilege. And this promised seed, it would be in him that all families of the earth would be blessed. 
And God is able to do this. He's able to help Israel and all families of the earth because of his mercy. He remembereth in remembrance of his mercy in verse 54. And because of this mercy, he gave the gift of his son, that seed, our Lord Jesus Christ. Then later in the same chapter, Zacharias, the priest, the father of the newly born John the Baptist, also appreciates the mercy that's being displayed by God. And he's only just been given back the power of speech. He fills his lungs and then he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies, saying in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Zacharias says, was to be a horn of salvation in verse 69. This son which would be born was the subject of so many prophecies given by men, by prophets, since the world began in verse 70. And he decided that Israel would be saved from their enemies. There would be no more Babylonians and Romans oppressing the people. There would be a king in Israel once again. And God would show the mercy promised to the fathers. And what was that mercy? Well, verse 77 we read, To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet unto the way of peace. God's mercy, of course, was to send his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to teach people about salvation, to save people by forgiving their sins. And Jesus Christ, in verse 78, was the day spring. He was the dawning light on a dark world. The people who sat in darkness, verse 79, those in the shadow of death would now know life and light in the face of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ would guide our feet in the way. He would show us the way to walk. So the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ was God's mercy. But that gift, his son, also showed the mercy of God because, of course, he had the exact character and qualities of God himself. There are five separate incidences in the gospel where we specifically read about our Lord Jesus Christ having compassion or mercy. And we'll just turn to two of them. 
Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. The mercy or the compassion of God, which is shown by Jesus. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. And when Jesus heard of it, he departed hence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion towards them and healed their sick. Jesus went to a desert place for a good reason. He needed time to meditate. He needed time to pray. He needed time to mourn. His friend, his cousin, the greatest spiritual mind, apart from his own, in the nation, had just been killed. And it was a terrible blow. And he needed himself people to show compassion. He needed time to think and to pray with his God. But we read that he puts the people's need before his own when he sees them. And he's the one who's moved with compassion towards the multitude. He couldn't help it. It was part of who he was. Our Lord Jesus Christ is merciful because his God, his Father, is merciful. And we'll read another example of, of this compassion, this mercy of our Lord in Matthew chapter 20. Two blind men. What do they need? They need their sight, of course. But first, they know that they need mercy. Matthew 20, verse 30. And behold, two blind men sitting by the way, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they, they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us. O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still, and he called them and said, What will ye that I should do unto you? And they said unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus, verse 34, had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus did what he did because that's who he was. He was like his father. He was merciful. And he was moved with his com compassion towards these men who never had the blessing of sight. And he gives that blessing. And they then followed him. With our final quote, let's have a look at the mercy of our God as it's displayed towards Saul of Tarsus in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. 
who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long sufferings for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him set life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Saul was an evil man. He was an enemy of God and an enemy of the believers of the truth. He persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But Saul obtained mercy. Verse 13. In verse 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceedingly abundant. Saul was forgiven all his sins. And Paul tells us that Jesus came, in verse 15, to save sinners. And Paul was chief of sinners. Verse 16, Paul was shown great mercy. Saul had destroyed people's lives. He'd put people in prison and he'd ensured that some of them were sentenced to death. He blasphemed the name of God. He broke so many of God's commandments. And God could have struck him down as an evildoer. But Paul was shown mercy. He's given a chance. And Paul was shown mercy, he tells us, for you and I, brothers and sisters. Paul's our example in so many things. And what Paul's telling us here is if that God could show mercy to him, then he can definitely show you and I mercy. Because of God's mercy and because of our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 16, we can share in God's eternal life. So the mercy of our God is a wonderful and a very humbling thing. And let's remember to show the same quality of mercy in our own lives. God's forgiveness. Our God is forgiving. I'd like to start in Micah chapter 7, if we can all turn there. A, uh, a beautiful passage talking about the abundance of God's forgiveness. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth over, uh, passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. 
Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. What encouraging words and what emphasis that's, uh, that's put on here. Our God is incredible. He pardons iniquity, verse 18. He passes over, he passes by transgression. And he does get angry. For example, in Micah's day, the whole of the northern kingdom was wiped out by the nation of Assyria. And it was punishment for their continual and non-repentant evil. But he doesn't retain that anger, he tells us. He wants to forgive because he delights in mercy. And he will turn again. He will return if, in verse 19, we repent. If we, he will have compassion on us. And then he'll subdue our iniquities. He conquers our iniquities. So we're told that God pardons, he passes over, and he subdues our sins. Then what about this for an analogy? Our sins are cast into the depths of the sea at the end of verse 19. Our sins go into the sea and they sink down, 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 right to the very bottom of the sea, never to be seen of or remembered or heard of again. Our God is forgiving. He delights in mercy and compassion. He's a God full, in verse 20, of mercy and of truth. A young boy in the kingdom of Judah heard these words. He would have met the old prophet Micah. He would have seen a copy of Micah's scroll, the same words that we've read tonight, the precious word of God captured with goatskin and ink. And at 12 years of age, this young boy became king. And this boy, the son of Hezekiah, one of Judah's greatest and most faithful kings, turned his back on the words of God. Manasseh was his name. And Manasseh reinstated and mandated worship to Baal and Asherah, the gods of Ahab and Jezebel, you'll remember. And he worshipped, we're told, all the host of heaven. And he built altars for them in the temple, in the house of God. And if the altars weren't enough, he put an image of Asherah inside the temple itself, a graphic depiction of the goddess of sexuality and fertility. Pornography, if you like, in the house of God. It's unbelievable, inconceivable how we could do something like that. What a mind of pure evil this man had. He also burnt his children in the fire. He sacrificed his own children to false gods. An abhorrent act. There was no love of God. There was no love of his neighbour. There was no love even of his own children. But there was a love for power and for selfish ambition and for control over his own future. And he surrounded himself with gods who reflected his own passions and ambitions and worldview. And we're told he dealt with familiar spirits and wizards, things strictly forbidden by his God. And if all that wasn't bad enough, we read in the king's record in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16, that Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside his sin, which he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Let's turn to the Chronicles record in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We're all sinners, aren't we, brothers and sisters? And all sin is evil and is worthy of death. But Manasseh's sins are on a scale that's hard to conceive of. He seems to have no conscience 
at all. There's no limits to what this man will do. Nothing is holding him back. His moral compass is completely broken. And his sins also had huge consequences on his brothers and his sisters. He made Judah to sin. And we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 9, Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom Yahweh had destroyed before the children of Israel. And Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. So God spoke to Manasseh. He spoke to the people. He sent them his prophets and Manasseh may have killed these prophets. Their blood may have flowed freely in the gutters of the streets of Jerusalem, along with anyone else who opposed Manasseh or tried to influence him at all for any good. So Manasseh's sin was very great, worse than the terrible Canaanites who lived in the land before the children of Israel came. A huge mountain of compounded sin. Verse 11, chapter 33, Wherefore Yahweh brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he sought Yahweh, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew Yahweh, he was God. So God in his mercy, in his great compassion, he uses the Assyrians. Manasseh is captured and he's taken all the way to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, we don't know exactly what the affliction was, but the Assyrians were experts in affliction. They cut off limbs, they gouged out eyes, they impaled people, they um, flayed them alive, they burnt them. To be a prisoner of the Assyrians would have been a truly terrifying experience. And in his sorry state, bound, in prison, hungry, in pain, he remembers the God of his father. He remembers his God. Deep down, he knew at this point there was no point praying to Baal and Asherah or any of the hosts of heaven, the inventions of men, because he knew they had no power to save. Now, he remembers Yahweh, the God of Israel. He prayed to his God. He besought God and he humbled himself. He prays and he prays and he prays. He tells God all his sins. He pours out his heart to his God. He humbles himself. He prostrates himself in humility. He repents with all sincerity. In verse 13, God was entreated of him. He heard his supplication. Manasseh had remembered that God is forgiving. He remembered the last verses of the last book of his Bible, the book of Micah, the words of the old prophet. God pardons. He passes over. He subdues our sins and he cast them metaphorically to the bottom of the sea verse 18 now the rest of the acts of manasseh and his prayer unto his god and the words of the seers that spoke to him in the name of yahweh the god of israel behold they're written in the book of the kings of israel his prayer also and how god was entreated of him and all his sin and his trespasses the places wherein he built high places and set up groves and graven images before he was humbled Behold, they're written among the sayings of the seer. So his sins stay in the written record, or at least what part of it 
we read. We don't have the book of the sayings of the seers any longer. But these, these facts, they're recorded as uh, the terrible history that's left there for a warning. They're recorded to explain why the people of God were thereafter so steeped in sin and idolatry. But Manasseh's sins are not remembered against him. They're forgiven and they're forgotten by our God and won't be brought up against him at the day of judgment. And Manasseh is then brought back to Jerusalem, we read, to, to repair the damage that he'd done to the kingdom of Judah. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? There's no God like our God, and Manasseh knew that. So, brothers and sisters, the lesson of Micah as lived out in the parable of the life of Manasseh should be obvious. Have confidence. God wants to forgive our sins. God loves to forgive our sins. He delights to show compassion and mercy towards us because that's who he is. If God can forgive Manasseh, God can forgive us too. And Manasseh, of course, humbled himself. He confessed his huge list of terrible sins and he repented from the heart of all the evil that he'd done towards his God. And he prayed to his God to forgive him. And he believed, he really believed that his sins would be forgiven. And his repentance is recorded for us as a pattern to follow. Our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. Let's come to Exodus, where we so often go to look again at how God introduces himself and his character to, to Moses and to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 verse 5, And Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed by before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Our God lives to forgive. Our God loves to forgive. And we need to believe that or we can't appreciate who our God is. And God isn't just revealing his character traits, he's revealing what his character does. And we've talked about in our first classes, God's mercy and God's grace. And what do God's mercy, his grace, his long-suffering do when they're put into practice? They forgive. Forgiveness is bound up in the memorial name of Yahweh. God forgives. He forgives all types of evil, all iniquity and transgression and sin. All bases of human failing are covered because God's purpose is to fill the earth with his glory. But our sins, they separate us from God. They mar, they cut across that glory. And the only way for God to fill the earth with his glory is if he forgives, if he forgives our sins. And he does so willingly. But he does have some conditions. So, of course, the conversation about forgiveness doesn't start in chapter 34 of Exodus. Let's come back to chapter 32, where the conversation starts with Moses. Exodus chapter 30, 32, verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Let him come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, 
Thus saith Yahweh Elohim of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbour. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to Yahweh, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up unto Yahweh. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto Yahweh and said, O this people, they've sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Whoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And Yahweh plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. So the issue here is the people have sinned. It's a great sin in verse 30. And Moses says, I'll try and make an atonement for your sin. I'll try and repair the breach that you've made between yourself and God. I'll try and bring you back to our God. And Moses loves his God. He's a friend of his God. He's a deeply faithful man, but he's still got a lot to learn about God's process of salvation, about the principles of salvation. Because he asks, if you will, in verse 32, please forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written, the book of life. So Moses is offering his eternal life to sacrifice his eternal life for the salvation of the people. And God says, no, Moses, that's not how it works. What you're asking isn't consistent with my principles. Whoever sins against me, him will I blot out of my book. I can't substitute you for them. That's not how it works. Verse 34, I will visit their sin upon them. And Yahweh sent a plague upon the people. So Moses asks God for, for the forgiveness of the people, but they're not forgiven. There is no substitution. There is no righteous man giving up his eternal life so that others can be saved. But nor is it salvation by the death of wicked people. 3,000 people are killed by the Levites. And then God kills further thousands with the plague. But the people are still not forgiven in chapter 32. They're still in their sins. Moses has failed to make atonement for them like he hoped. But then we come to chapter 33. God says, unto, telling to go up unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man did put on him his ornaments. For Yahweh had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. I will come up in the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thine ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. In chapter 32, God had not touched their hearts. They were not repentant. They had no faith. They were still in their sins. But in chapter 33, 
they start to appreciate the consequences of sin. And the consequences of sin were separation from God. God wanted to be their God and for them to be his people. He wanted them for a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a blessing for the whole world. But the people had made a choice, a deliberate choice, to worship their own gods, the imaginations of their own mind, the working of their own hands. And God could no longer go with them. They were not walking in the way with him. And on hearing the pronouncement, these people realised that the consequence of sin was death. They would all be consumed. They all deserved to die, either by the sword or by the plague. And finally, the reality of their situation before their God sinks in. When they heard this evil tidings, in verse 4, they mourned. They wept. And that's a good start, isn't it? They were sorry. They put off their ornaments, we're told. And then in verse 7, the tent of meetings taken outside the camp. You had to go outside the camp to seek Yahweh. The separation was real and it was being demonstrated to them very practically. In verse 8, it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and, every, and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and Yahweh talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door and all the people rose up and worshipped every man at his tent door. So the people are changing, aren't they? They're responding to God's word. They're repenting. They're changing their walk. They stood at the front door of their tent and they worshipped God. Verse 13, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. Moses appeals to his God. He says, God, I need to get a better understanding of who you are and what you do and how you forgive. Because Moses had had his first request for forgiveness rejected. He needs to understand his God better. And that's one of the reasons why we have the revelation of God's character in chapter 34. But then in verse 14, God says, maybe surprisingly, and he said, un and, and he said in response to Moses, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. Forgiveness, God tells Moses, is who I am. I love to forgive, but it must be given on a right basis. It must be consistent with my righteousness. I can't clear the guilty, which is what you are asking me to do, Moses. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 34, verse 8. And Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. So Moses asks again, doesn't he? Please go with us and pardon our sin, our iniquity. And he's still not quite convinced about how God is responding to the people and how God, how does God respond on the second time of asking. He says in verse 10, Behold, I make a covenant before thy people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation and all the people among which thou, thou art shall see the work of Yahweh for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. 
So God is making a covenant, an agreement, a promise. He won't destroy his people. He will bring them into his promised land. And with them as a nation, he would do marvels. And the whole world would be in awe, as they are to this day. And the people were forgiven. God would go with them. But God only forgave them because they had turned to him. They'd repented and they wanted to walk in his ways. So God is forgiving and he forgave these people over the incident of the golden calf. He didn't wipe them out and he didn't send a lower ranked angel. Yahweh would go with them and so he did. And he took them all the way to the promised land. Let's have a look at our reading in Numbers chapter 14. So less than two years later, Moses and Yahweh, the Yahweh angel, has brought the people to the edge of the promised land. The land he made a covenant that he would bring them to. A land that he promised to Abraham and his seed. A land of abundance. A land of milk and honey. A land of oversized grapes and beautiful pomegranates and figs. A land of pre-built houses and olive groves and orchards. But a land full of strong people living in cities with large fortified walls, a land of giants. And when the people heard the negative part of the report from 10 of the spies in chapter 14, verse 1, all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. The whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we died in the land of Egypt, or would God that we died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath Yahweh brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return unto Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. The people at this point in time, as they did so often, no longer wanted to walk with God. They wanted to walk in the opposite direction. They didn't want the promised land and the life and the freedom that it promised. They would rather slavery in Egypt. They'd rather go back to their old way of life, to worship the gods of Egypt and forget about the God of Israel with all these demands for faith and obedience. And Caleb and Joshua say in verse 9, Rebel ye not against Yahweh, neither fear, the, fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and Yahweh is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. God is with us, Caleb and Joshua say. Don't rebel. We can easily defeat these people. And the people's response is to pick up stones. Caleb and Joshua were to be punished with death for daring to have faith in God and to oppose the darkness of Egypt. And the glory of Yahweh, in verse 10, appeared in the tabernacle. The people had sinned again, and they'd sinned badly, hadn't they? In verse 11, Yahweh said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me, and how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with the pestilence, and disinherit them, and I'll make of thee a greater nation, and mightier than they." Sign after sign, miracle after miracle, the ten plagues, the Red Sea, the manna from heaven every day. And they don't believe, they don't trust in their God. And we get frustrated just reading 
about their failings. Imagine how God felt living with it every day. But Moses says, verse 17, And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, Yahweh is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Moses, of course, cites God's character. His heart's desire is to see his people forgiven. Sin has great power, and their sin is very grave. But God's power to forgive is even greater. Verse 20, And Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. This, brothers and sisters, is of course God's whole purpose. God wants the earth filled with his glory. And the way he'll do it, the only way he can do it, is to forgive sinners, to remove their sins and to make them righteous. So they can reflect the character of God himself, reflect God's glory. But God can't forgive the guilty. He can't forgive those who don't seek his forgiveness, those who repeatedly reject him. And we read also in verse 20, because, or 22, because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely thou shalt not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. God wasn't going to wipe the people out. He pardoned them again from that deserved punishment. Verse 28, Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith Yahweh, as ye have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. The punishment would be death in the wilderness for everyone aged twenty years old and over. God would forgive sins, even the sins of those condemned to death in the wilderness, if they change their ways and turn to him. And God in this chapter is highlighting to them and to us the eternal choice that we all have to make. Either they walk with God and repent and ask for forgiveness, or they turn back to the things of Egypt and their old ways. One choice would result in eternal life and being part of God's glory. The other would result in shame and eternal death. As truly as I live, verse 21, the earth will be filled with my glory. As truly as I live, verse 28, death is the punishment for the guilty. So our God wants to forgive and we can see how hard he works, how hard he works here with the nation of Israel, how hard he works with us, but he needs a response. Let's come to the New Testament where we pick up another focus of forgiveness. Matthew chapter 6. So Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read verse 9, our Lord's Prayer. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily, our daily bread, 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father, forgive our debts. And God is forgiving. He will forgive us. But Jesus doesn't leave it there, does he? Forgive our debtors. And of all the important topics that are mentioned and highlighted in, in this magnificent model prayer, our Lord picks up just one more point to explain in detail. Verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Our forgiveness, we learn, is conditional on our forgiveness of others. And Peter, later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, he asks about the frequency of forgiveness. How often should I forgive? Seven times, Peter says. He, he thinks that's a pretty generous number. No, says Jesus, not seven times. I want you to forgive your brother 70 times seven. A huge number. Because our Lord knows that we keep failing each other. Our brother is like that fellow servant who owes $10,000 in Christ's parable that follows in Matthew 18, which we, uh, we talked about last class. And $10,000 is a lot of money. There's a lot of sins that will be committed against us. But we need to keep forgiving. Because, don't forget, says our Lord, no matter how many offences are committed against us, it will pale into insignificance compared to how many offences that we commit against our God. He's like a king that will forgive our debt of one billion dollars, a sum that we could never hope to earn in our lifetime. We never earn that debt. We rely on God's mercy. And in turn, our brothers and sisters should be able to rely on our mercy. Forgive because God is forgiving. And the characteristics and actions which are described in Exodus chapter 34 are characteristics and actions we need to reflect, we need to take on, because God wants us to become like him. He wants us to show mercy and grace and long-suffering and kindness. He wants us to forgive, because in doing so, gives him honour and glory. And when we don't do all these things, and we won't perfectly, he's merciful with our insufficient mercy. And he shows grace towards our inadequate grace. And he forgives our imperfect forgiveness. As long as our goal is to try to be like our Father and to walk with him. I read you Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And what example did our Lord leave us? Christ's most important lesson of forgiveness was the lesson he taught from the cross. Our Lord was beaten. He was spat on. He was mocked by Herod and his soldiers. He was scourged before Pilate. He was mocked again and had a crown of thorns forced on his head. He carried a heavy cross. He was sleep deprived, shamed, ridiculed. He was forced to lie down on a rough cross with a raw and bleeding back. He had huge nails hammered through his hands and his feet. And you would have felt the agony as the cross was lifted and dropped into a hole. Beaten, tortured, humiliated and scorned. And the first words out of his mouth were a plea and a prayer to his father in heaven. 
Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is a real lesson of forgiveness, isn't it? It cuts through all the reasons we can list why we don't forgive our brothers and sisters. This type of forgiveness is not dependent on a response from others. This is not God's forgiveness. That forgiveness is different. This is our forgiveness. Before the person is sorry, before the person has repented, before the person even knows they've offended us, forgive them. And we do it for them, of course, but we also, well, the most important effect is the effect that it has on ourselves. We become more like our God if we, if we forgive quickly and frequently. And that's our challenge. And it's a challenge which is given to us by the words in the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Seven times? No, 70 times seven. So our Lord, as our, he always does, sets the standard. He tells us how, he tells us when. Our Lord and Master, by whose name we've been called, teaches us how to show love and mercy and grace and the character of God in how we forgive. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a gift in so many ways. See my son, God says, and take on his character. Become like him. His character is God's character. And we're called to develop that character and reflect him in our walk. And when a brother or sister sins against you, and they will, forgive them. Because no matter how much pain and suffering, humiliation, slander, or false accusation that we may feel, no one could do anything that ever measures up to what was done to our Lord. We'll never be in a situation in our lives where it's equivalent. So in no situation would it be okay to withhold forgiveness. And that's the lesson. And of course, we're not saying to just ignore all sin and let it run rampant in the ecclesia without taking any actions. There are guidelines, of course, for behaviour in the ecclesia. We're specifically talking about personal offences committed against you and against me. And the example of our Lord is to forgive that brother or sister. Forgive them and forgive them from your heart. There's no bitterness in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was in searing pain and agony like we can't believe. And despite this, his focus on the cross was saving others. Both those who stood around him, those who come before him, and those who were afar off in time. And this is why Christ forgives and God forgives, to save people from their sins. Christ forgave the soldiers, the priests, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees, the ordinary people watching on. They're in the midst of their sin, and he's in the midst of his agony. And out of compassion, he prays for their forgiveness. He's forgiving them even while they're sinning. That's what mercy and grace and long-suffering and kindness will produce in our character. And as hard as it may seem to believe, forgiveness can be extended in our own lives, even while the sin is being committed. Christ was the Word made flesh. He was the character of God, perfectly shown in a human being. And this is the character that we're called on to develop. Don't take offence. It doesn't matter what kind of hurt. It doesn't matter if they've apologised. Forgive. That's what the love of Christ does. That's what the forgiveness of Christ is. The power of forgiveness is greater than the power of the sin. And I want to finish by reading you one last quote. A quote from a man who was an eyewitness of our Lord on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> For what glory is it 
If, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who in his own self bear our sins, in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls.